Welcome, listener. This is Louis, host of The Cove, the podcast where we go deep with crypto builders along the path to 100 million daily signers. Today, we've got Ilmoy and Richard, co-founders of Tensor, on the show. With Tensor claiming a rapidly rising percentage of NFT trading on Solana and an innovative new loot box airdrop mechanic, all eyes have been on Tensor in the last weeks. We chat about how they built Tensor, what a pro NFT trading experience looks like, where NFTs are headed, how to build for product market fit, and much, much more. Before we dive in, I'd like to share a bit about Streamflow, who make this podcast possible. Streamflow is hassle-free on-chain token operations using money streams. Stop using an Excel sheet and start using Streamflow for automated token vesting and payroll. Streamflow is the market leader on Solana. Twice audited with over 500 million in TVL, 37,000 plus streams created and 40 plus clients, including outstanding teams like Raindrops, Hubble, Jungle DeFi, Heavenland, Genopets, and the list goes on. To set up hassle-free vesting contracts and automated payroll, head over to streamflow.finance and get started today. I'm here with Richard and Ilmoy, two co-founders of Tensor, the fastest NFT exchange on Solana. Uh, and they have just been getting massive, massive uh, eyes on them on Twitter across across the crypto Twitter with the new airdrop that they've just done. Uh, I've personally been playing around with Tensor. I really like it. I'm not a professional NFT trader yet, but um, I'm a big fan of what you guys have built. And it's a pleasure to have you guys on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Louis, uh, for having us. Been a big fan of uh, the Cove since you know since I joined crypto. So it's very cool to be on be on your podcast second that thanks for having us yeah it's an absolute pleasure and it's lovely to hear that yeah yeah this is gonna be fun so as you mentioned um you've been a fan since you went into crypto so this is kind of like where i love to start um and to chat about like how you guys got into the game of crypto how you got into solana um so maybe we can start with you richard sure yeah um so i've actually i got into crypto pretty late in the game i would say you know i was um there during 2017 during the craziness but not as a builder not as um someone in the space really you know i just heard heard from my friends that ethereum was going crazy bought some ethereum on coinbase uh and then subsequently sold during the uh bubble um and then it wasn't until last year 2022 when i was um working you know my sort of tradfi job as a quant researcher at a hedge fund in new york city um, that's when I sort of decided that I wanted to work on a startup and looked for was looking for a co-founder and actually found Ilya or Ilmoy um, on the YC Startup School portal. He had been, uh, of course, I'll, I'll let him tell his story, um, but he had been building on Solana for quite a bit. And so we started chatting and, you know, things just took off from there. We We exchanged notes, we decided to work on a trial project, and that's when I first got red pilled into Solana and the rest of crypto. One question there, Richard, I've noticed that quite a few people that uh, came to Solana came from TradFi jobs. Um, can you say a bit about like, was there something that attracted you to Solana in particular? Yeah, I think what was interesting about Solana um, was just from a user perspective, it was very different from my experience with Ethereum, where, you know, 
when I was using MetaMask, it was actually really confusing, even for someone who was like more into software, more into tech. Um, it was a very confusing user experience because one, transactions didn't confirm instantly. And so, you know, for, if you're the, if you're, you know, using MetaMask for the first time, you get really confused, like what's going on? Like, did my funds get sent? You know, why is this transaction pending on Etherscan? What can I do to cancel it? Um, then when I started using Solana for the first time, like everything just felt like, it felt like Web2. It felt like sending a normal transfer to a bank, or maybe not a bank, but like it, it felt like sending a transfer through Venmo where everything was instant. You get instant feedback. There was no like 30 to 60 second delay. Um, so yeah, just, just from a user perspective, yeah. it was a breath of, breath of fresher for sure. Yeah, totally. I, I I dare anyone who's like not super, super into the EVM space to actually understand everything when you're signing a transaction on MetaMask. Like all those numbers, I swear, I swear like the only thing you pay attention to is like the USD cost of the TX. <laughs> everything else is just like this additional information is crazy. Um, all right, uh, Ilmoy, can you share your journey into crypto? Yeah, I guess my background before crypto was uh, tech, finance and gaming. So I guess my uh, my first year as a professional was a gaming nerd, and then I kind of got into finance, and then from there I got into development. And so if you think about crypto, it's really like the industry that combines the three. And so it was pretty natural fit for me. Um, I think for Solana, right, it was kind of similar to what Richard described. So actually, I was a dev on Ethereum before I was uh, playing with Solana. And for me, with Ethereum, I had two problems. Everything was, so, so the X was, extremely shitty and so i just couldn't see how you could build a good product like something that i would personally enjoy using and something that i could tell my friends to go use and the second thing is um the development environment and like the kind of code style and everything was just like was was trash like i didn't like evm i didn't like this pseudo javascript thing that you had to write to uh to build smart contracts and it felt super buggy and like you could make a lot of mistakes and lose a lot of people's money. And I think we've seen that a lot on Ethereum. Solana was, it attracted my attention because it was doing something different. And I know I keep saying this a lot, but I think it's really important. Like Solana was not an EVM fork. It was not a chain that was trying to take what worked and then slap on a 15% patch and say, guys, we're a new chain. Like, you know, we're going to have a different number of validators or we're going to have like this one parameter changed. Solana actually thought from first principles and tried building something different. And at the time, what I saw in Solana was a community was, that was just starting up, kind of like Ethereum in 2018, and a different new piece of technology. And to me, those two were like a super exciting combination because I thought, okay, well, surely there's got to be use cases that Ethereum is overlooking that something like Solana with its speed and cheapness of transactions is going gonna, is gonna to cover and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go and build on Solana. And so, yeah, that was basically it, right? I bought a couple of books on Rust. I learned it, learned to code and started building stuff on Solana. And then, yeah, just like I got shipped a ton of open source stuff and then met Richard and we started yeah. working on Tensor. For me, this, as soon as I used Phantom uh, on, I think it was Sabre back then, the, just the UX, like the UX was such an improvement. And I, I, to this day, I don't understand how other people using other chains don't, don't actually catch how much of an improvement it is. But, you know, that, that's a topic for another day. As you mentioned, then you moved to Tensor. So let's get stuck into Tensor. Uh, what is Tensor? How did you guys get started with that? 
what's what's it bringing to the game that's fresh why is everyone talking about it um yeah give us the give us the the pitch i mean i guess we can start with the very beginning um maybe maybe some context is um due so you know when Ilya and i started working together our first project or our first foray into crypto wasn't tensor as you see it today so our initial project that we wanted to work on was building an nft pricing oracle what that means is that you know a lot of these uh, nft DeFi protocols required some sort of on-chain oracle um, to provide floor prices for collections for example pool-based lending protocols require some sort of floor price in order to essentially in, uh, instantaneously issue uh, loans that's a certain LTV for an NFT that someone wants to take out a loan for. And for liquidations, they also need a floor price to perform those, um, perform the calculations. So we wanted to build essentially the NFT pricing oracle for Solana and for Ethereum. But, you know, after working on it for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, we realized that the customer base isn't there. Like there isn't a big enough business mm -hmm. that we can build by just providing an NFT pricing oracle. I mean, frankly, like Solana had maybe 10 pro protocols at max. Now probably like five protocols that would want something like this and would pay for it. Mm. And so we, we basically decided, hey, we need to pivot. We need to do something different. But given everything that we've built for this NFT pricing oracle, um, which was the data infrastructure to ensure a very, essentially a, a fault tolerant, reliable pipeline of NFT data, we thought, hey, maybe we could use this to build a really cool trading platform for NFTs. I mean, at the time, you know, we were using Magic Eden, Stolen Art was still a thing. We just felt that both of those platforms wasn't really catered to our backgrounds as traders. Like we wanted to see more data. We wanted to see floor, historical floor prices. We wanted to see data coming in real time, especially for NFTs that were minting live. And we just felt like we were you know, we didn't get the full information of how these NFTs were being traded. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, it was largely motivated by our experience as NFT traders. We wanted to build a better NFT platform that was more catered to um, guys like us who wanted uh, a lot of data upfront. And when did you guys get started with Tensor? We started working on this pretty much exactly a year ago. Uh, it was the Prague Hacker House um, when we were basically writing up the first version of the Oracle and we shipped it for the Riptide Hackathon that closed right after. That's the second the second project in, in, this, in two episodes, which was also built at a hackathon. So let's see if we can keep the streak going with the next one. That's really cool to hear. So for people who are like a bit less in the NFT game, uh, can you guys break down like what Tensor is actually doing, say versus, you know, a Magic Eden? Yeah, I can take this. So I guess our view of the world is that NFTs is first and foremost an asset class. And it's not just an asset class, it's the asset class in a sense that it will represent everything and anything that is unique and digital. And if you come and think about that, that's a lot of things. And that's why we're so bullish on it. Like, I know that right now, NFTs are basically PFPs and a few other things. And so most people looking outside and think, well, surely this, this is like a toy. Like, how is this ever going to go anywhere? But if you look at like important technologies, they always start out as toys. And there's always like a fun use case to begin with. 
and then it basically takes over the world. And that's what we're seeing with NFTs right now. And so if you think about NFTs as an asset class, then the rightful question you can ask yourself is, what kind of tools are needed for this asset class to exist and financialize? And if you then go and look at the current generation of marketplaces, you're gonna quickly realize that they're basically not sufficient. The current generation of marketplaces are basically copycats of you know, Web2 marketplaces, your Ebays, your Amazons, where people took over those models, literally like the UI, and then superimposed them on NFTs. And they said, okay, now you can like trade your NFTs eBay style. And that's cool. And it works in the beginning, just like Craigslist worked in the beginning for the internet. But that is not the ultimate destination. The ultimate destination is a tool that is as sophisticated, as fast, and as robust as what you find in traditional trading. Because ultimately, this is an asset class, going back to what I said, which you can trade back and forth. And so our hunch was very simple. It was like, okay, well, if this thing is actually going to be big, then the platform where people are going to trade this is going to have to be different. It's going to, be, it's going to have to be a lot faster. It's going to have to have a lot more data. Uh, it's going to have to be real time. It's going to have to have advanced functionality. And it's going to probably be owned by the community, right? Because that's basically the reason we're all here. Like the, the main reason you're building something with Web3 is because you involve the community from day one and then you hand over the product, uh, the product and the project over time. And we just didn't see that happening, right? And so we thought, okay, fuck it, we'll just build it. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was our vision for Tensor and stay street today. And in regards to like the, the aggregator side, so is that another key difference? Because I understand what you're saying here where like the, the traditional marketplaces, they've just kind of copied what was there before. I always think back to that, uh, that skeuomorphic design that Apple used where they like used calendars, you know, like di- things that look like calendars, but digital. And I guess this is another example of that in a sense, because, you know, Web3 has kind of just copied Web2 and said like, this is good enough um, because this is where we're at with NFTs right now. But what you're saying is where we're at, where we'll be with NFTs in say three years or five years or where we're heading, um, it's not gonna be good enough. We need to sort of rethink it from the ground up. Um, So in regards to like the aggregator um, and the AMM, I, I imagine some people are familiar with NFTs in like a very simplistic way where, you know, there's just a swap of like one one user pays money, the other user offers the NFT and there's a, like there's a trade happening or there's a, there's a swap happening. Um, so what does it mean to have like an NFT AMM um, and, and, and an aggregator for those that are not familiar with that term? Yeah, I guess I can touch on the aggregator first and then talk about the AMM. So the reason why we built an aggregator first and didn't actually have our own liquidity, whether it's a marketplace or an AMM was because, you know, when you're, whenever you're building some sort of two-sided marketplace or two-sided market where you have buyers and sellers and buyers need sellers to buy from and sellers need sellers to sorry, sellers need buyers to buy their NFTs. It's very difficult to bootstrap that without, um, without some sort of like, way to get the other side on your platform and then attracting sort of Mm -hmm. the other side to buy or sell um, to the other side. Um, It's a cold start problem. Exactly. It's like like a cold start problem. The aggregator was actually our way to bootstrap our platform. So instead of having to come up with the sell side supply, Mm -hmm. which is the listings, we essentially aggregated all the major marketplaces in order to have something there for users to come and see. And it, 
like in addition to that, like it also provided almost like an analytics platform for a lot of people who were looking for more of a pro analytics experience where they can see, let's say, a real time trading view floor price chart. They can see a live feed that updates in real time. So that was useful to a lot of these pro traders who were using, let's say, Magic Eden before, but wanted, you know, a better data experience. Once we sort of had enough buyers essentially on the platform, then we could start building up our own liquidity. And that's sort of when we introduced our AMM back in November. And the AMM, NFT AMM, was sort of a concept pioneered by Pseudoswap on Ethereum, where what they said was basically for NFTs, we don't care about the individual um, non-fungibility of the NFTs themselves. Let's put all of these NFTs into a pool and they're treated almost equally in terms of like the price that they're the price that they're on the market for. So if you put 10 NFTs into an MM pool, anyone can buy uh, any one of those 10 NFTs for the current price. So let's say the AMM started at 10 sol. Someone could come to Tensor and pick out one of those 10 NFTs and purchase it for 10 sol. And similar to how like AMMs work with tokens, every time someone purchases an, purchases an NFT from the pool, the price can adjust upwards. That way you can sort of, you know, put 10, 10 NFTs into an AMM pool and sell that on an ascending curve where the first NFT might sell for 10 soul, the second NFT might sell for 11 soul, 12 soul, so on and so forth. And that way, one, the buyer gets to choose which NFT they want to purchase at any given time. And you as sort of the AMM pool creator, you don't have to like specify like, oh, only this NFT can be sold at 10 soul, only this NFT can be sold at 11 soul. And for us, like, you know, we decided to build the AMM because we saw that most NFTs on Solana and even on Ethereum traded near the floor, like somewhere around 80% to 90% of volume for any given mm -hmm. NFT collection are NFTs that are trading very close to the floor. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's very indicative that NFTs almost trade like tokens, but not exactly. And that people might care for certain traits. But the vast majority of NFTs um, are treated as a token within this 10,000 NFT collection. So does that mean, just one question here, does that mean that in general, people who issue the liquidity on the AMM, they're mostly picking up floor boys and then putting them in the AMM? Yeah, that's the most logical way to create an AMM pool um, because the issue is if you put more rare NFTs into an AMM, then what someone could do is essentially buy it for whatever your initial price was that you set in the pool. And that price is probably pretty close to the floor. Even if that price wasn't close to the floor, mm. um, an AMM actually is two sides. So it includes both, um, you're putting up soul to purchase NFTs and you're putting up NFTs to sell for soul. And those prices usually have some sort of spread in between. So you might be selling NFTs for 10 soul but you also might be buying NFTs at 9.5 soul at the same time. And so if you had rare NFTs in this pool, someone could, for example, just buy the NFT for 10 soul and sell you a floor NFT for 9.5 soul. And so they've effectively traded a rare NFT uh, for their, or one of your rare NFTs for a common NFT for 0 0.5 soul. And that's sort of the spread in between your buy and sell price. Mm. And so like AMM pools, are very um, good for floor NFTs, but not very good for rare NFTs.
Mm. But on Tensor itself, like yeah, we've actually um, recently implemented standard marketplace listings into our contract. And so you could like say, I want to list this NFT for, you know, above floor for two, three X above floor or for any desired price you want, much like how a, a standard marketplace is. And that was sort of our observation that, you know, people needed the flexibility to, you know, have standard marketplace listings on our platform, but also take advantage of these AMM pools. Mm, okay, got you, got you. So now that we've established like how the AMM comes into play, um, how the aggregator got started, uh, or why you started with an aggregator, you also referred earlier to Tensor being like more professional and more for people like professional traders like yourself, how you started out. So can you speak a little bit about like, why is it important to professionalize it? And I'm guessing, you know, cause you guys are bullish on NFTs long-term that that makes sense that there'll need to be people that are professional when it comes to NFTs. But I'd love to hear like from the product perspective, like what you guys felt was, was wrong with the status quo um, and what you guys have done to professionalize it beyond it being lightning fast. And I just want to insert here, like it is noticeably like really, really fast. And I do think that in the space in general, people underweight how important it is to have like really snappy performance. Um, so just like that, that's a little side comment, but yeah, feel free to take the question. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? Because I feel like I would answer this question differently every month in the past year because we're just learning so much about our users and our product every single day. I guess my current stance is that, well, first of all, what does a professional mean? It probably means somebody doing this at least partially to make money and at least partially to earn a living. And that probably also means that it's a pretty important thing for them, right? So they're not kind of doing this as like, eh, whatever, I'd operate like one trade on, you know, like a marketplace, uh, like once a week and forget about it. They're like doing it every day, right? And I think as we all know, like if you're doing something every day, then even the smallest little details start to really matter to you because you're basically like looking at the same thing for like 12 hours, 16 hours, right? And so like you'll notice, you'll, you'll feel the difference if it loads mm -hmm. just a little bit faster. If there's just that one extra feature that maybe saves you like having to do a certain action um, or like there's like one extra feature that lets you trade a certain way. And so I guess like, what does it even mean to build a pro product? Well, I think building a pro product is just like really focusing on the subset of people for whom this is almost a job or close to a job. And then really kind of nailing down the user experience, like sitting down with those uh, people and in user interviews and being like, okay, what doesn't work? And then you just like do that a million times and you understand like, okay, well, this is too slow and this is too that and this is too that. And then you keep changing and changing and changing until basically something that used to take them you know, five minutes now it takes them a couple of seconds. Like I'll give you a very specific example. So we have a trader right now that we're chatting to who basically told us guys, like, I like the platform, everything's cool. But like, for me, it's just really important to be able to um, get out my fees from market making pools separately. So currently on Tensor, when you do market making, the fees stay in the pool and are available for continued market making. So they're not segregated. He just said like, like for me, the way I trade, it's just really important. And at first we were like, well, yeah, but like the way our contract is architected doesn't support it. Then we're like, okay, well, no, this is, this is the polar opposite of what we should be doing because this guy is literally our target customer. 
And mm-hmm. we just went and we spent a couple hours whiteboarding and we found a solution to be able to build in segregated fees without over our uh, architecting the entire contract. And I think it's just like those little things that add up over time. And it's guys like him that show up to a platform like two years later and they're like, holy shit, this has everything I need. So I think like building a pro product is just, you know, being in love with your user, being in love with what you're doing, being in love with a product and like paying attention to the little details um, and constantly asking yourself like, hey, how can I like shave off a couple seconds here? How can I make it a bit faster here? How can I like make the life of my users a little bit easier? And just like listening to every one of them. Like if, if there's one thing I've learned over time is that every single time I thought that a user request was stupid or wrong, I was proven wrong. Like every single time they asked for something, we implemented it and people loved it. So I guess like, yeah, just being all ears and like, you know, staying, uh, staying close to the ground. I really, really love that. I think the ETH Denver um, the ETH Denver conference was recently on and I saw some tweets that were like, man, there's nothing about actual user-facing apps. It's all about infrastructure and there's like so little focus on finding product market fit. It's all about like, how do we scale this? How do we, you know, scale that? Um, and I think what you've just said there absolutely nails it. Like if you're building in crypto, like rewind and listen to that again because it is so, so key to focus on users. And I think with crypto we've had the luxury for a while because it like because you blend tokens that can make money we have we've had the luxury of having users kind of happy to suffer through because they they expect to to, you know they're anticipating that there may be some benefit to them Um, and those days i think are kind of coming to a close like now you really have to build like a fantastic product and yeah so i just want to underscore that again you know i was also in user testing today at streamflow and i heard something which once I heard it, it was so obvious, but like we hadn't considered that when we were designing it. You know, it's just interesting when you when you speak with users and you really take their perspective. Yeah, you can learn a lot. Like just really, they see the world very differently. And actually, um, Ilmo, because you mentioned that you're into gaming, what it, what it makes me think of, and I like to, you know, pull out corny metaphors sometimes, but like if many people will be familiar with like um, DE Dust in Counter-Strike, right? And like most people who've played it, you can probably remember every single movement to each bomb site, right? Like, and and this is what users who are using a product every day. That's how it is for them when they're interacting with the different parts of your product. So yeah, figure out like how to hone every little step that they're taking. Um, so yeah, just wanted to um, sort of get uh, zoom in on that one. Um, I'd love to like kind of hear a bit more about you guys in terms of product market fit on the NFT side. Um, as I feel this relates to like building a great product and listening to users. Uh, and I think that this is something that for me, like this is the focus in 2023 or it should be the focus is, is product market fit. Um, how do you guys think about product market fit as it relates to NFTs in particular? Yeah. So I think this goes back to our entire thesis on what we think the current product market fit for crypto is. And we have some inkling of what it is in the future, but I guess I'll, I'll talk about what our thesis is of crypto currently. I think crypto right now, a lot of the product market fit, it is speculation. It is, in some sense, gambling, um, for better or worse. And and also like payments, you know, the transfer of value. But I would say like largely a lot of the excitement right now is oriented around speculation, which is fine, right? Like there is a need for speculation. Either people would, you know, trade stocks, would trade even penny stocks. In this case, a lot of people are trading crypto assets, including NFTs. 
I think what's remarkably different about NFT trading compared to token trading is that there's a very like social experience around it. When you when you think of like people trading Dogecoin or like some other altcoin that they discovered like two days ago, it's it's a very like it's a very like bare bones experience where there's no like community, there's no like pictures that you look at, there's no art, there's no branding. It's just a name, like a, a four digit name or a five digit name. Um, you know, you have a price chart and you're just trying to make money, right? And you might talk to your friends about like, oh, by the way, I bought Doge, you know, before Elon tweeted. But it's a very like bare bones experience. There's no like social experience beyond that. With NFTs, what we're seeing is that it's almost a very like, it's almost like a very native experience in crypto where you have a lot of people on crypto Twitter, you have a lot of people in Discord who talk about NFTs like day in, day out. They talk to their friends about which NFT projects they aped into. They talk about like upcoming news for projects that could pump the price or could, you know, cause a price to collapse. It's an inherently very social experience with speculation tacked onto it. And I think that's very powerful because one, it's it's a way for people in, in the community to essentially bond with each other. Like it, it's 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 almost like a very unique experience where you get to um, essentially share in the ups and downs with people that you've met on the internet. And if you guys both make money, then that's great. If you guys both lose money, you're, you're losing money together. And I think there's like, there's like some like comfort in that, that, you know, you're in this together. I think what we've built is essentially the platform to experience, to, to experience that, you know, social speculation aspect of it. I think going forward, like NFTs could be so much more. Obviously, people are thinking about NFTs and games where you can trade these assets back and forth. You don't have to be locked into a single platform um, where you can't move your gaming assets outside of the game. But it's it's unclear like where where future demand is. Um, right now, I think it's it's social speculation. Do you guys have a take on like real world assets? Do you see them? in your crystal ball do you see them like you know somehow being represented by nfts as well is that is that an interesting element in terms of in terms of like looking you know maybe in the next two or five years i think two years is optimistic uh long run absolutely they will be represented by by nfts it's a bit like asking do you think that in the future some interaction that people are doing is going to happen over the internet like yeah, it's going to happen mm-hmm. over the internet because internet is a fundamentally superior technology to sending around, you know, letters with pigeons. Like equally, yeah. NFTs and tokens are a fundamentally superior technology to sending around value versus the traditional banking system where it still for some reason takes seven days and 50 bucks fee to send money from the UK to Canada, which is like beyond me, but it's the state of the world today. So yeah, the answer is like real world assets are going to come. But the, the more interesting question is... Um, when they kind of come in what order. And I think, at least in my head, the answer is that real world real world assets are going to be the last thing that comes onto the chain because it's just so hard. Like you now need to basically take physical things, physical infrastructure, and somehow connect them to this digital world that, mind you, most of the world thinks it's it's a scam. It, it doesn't mm. it doesn't make sense to me. I think real world assets will be around in like 10 years. What I expect to happen in the period before that is actually 
digitally native assets to be the main focus of NFTs. So gaming assets, social things, for example, um, shout out to our project called Dialect. We know Chris there, and they're doing really interesting things around stickers, right? Where the stickers in their app are going to be NFTs. And that's a really interesting social experiment, but I think it's very uh, telling in what to expect where this is like a very digitally native thing. And there's just no other way, like physically no other way to trade this other than making it an NFT. And that's why it's an NFT. You know, houses, cars, all of that stuff. You can trade it today on like Web2 marketplaces. You don't need them to be an NFT. They will become NFTs because of efficiency, but it's going to be like the last leg of the cycle. Like by the time like cars are NFTs, like I don't think there's anything exciting happening in crypto anymore. And there's like 18 layers of regulation and like we're all bored and we all moved on to the next thing. Yeah, it seems like a very uh, realistic take to me as well. And it's a bit like sometimes people talk about like onboarding, you know, the grandmas or something. And it's like, no, nah, like that, that, like that's going to be the last user that we onboard. Like there's there's a 99% of other users that will come before the grandma. Uh, and they're the ones we need to be focusing on, you know, right now. Um, so with regard to... I want to like speak a little bit about, um, you know, the recent news you guys have had, maybe just for those who are not glued to Twitter, you could just um, update the community or the listeners on, you know, the latest news this week, because you guys have had a busy week. Yeah. So on Monday of this week, so that was, I guess, two days ago, we announced our uh, season two of the Tensor Rewards program. Essentially, everyone who traded NFTs on Solana in the past six months are eligible um, to claim our, we call them like reward boxes or loot boxes. Um, there are four rarities to them, you know, common, uncommon, epic, and legendary, or sorry, not legendary, uh, uncommon, uncommon, rare, and epic. There's also a fifth rarity class that we haven't uh, released yet. Um, those are sort of saved for special events in the future. But essentially, if you've traded NFTs mm -hmm. on Solana in the past six months, you're eligible to claim these boxes on our website. Uh, for people who traded on Tensor, they actually got somewhere between 25 to 50 times the amount of rewards that someone who didn't trade on Tensor in the past, I want to say like three, four months. Um, that's because we wanted to reward early users of our platform and really show them that, you know, we care what you did. We care about what you did for our platform and growing it and providing more liquidity. And hence why we're giving you much, uh, a lot more rewards. So, you know, there's this airdrop and we also announced season two, which is the next season of our rewards program, where we are providing even more loot boxes, somewhere between um, two to 10 X, uh, the amount of rewards that we airdropped initially to people who are providing liquidity on Tensor. And what providing liquidity uh, when it comes to NFTs means is you either, you know, put up listings um, to sell NFTs, you either put up bids to buy NFTs, or you create these market-making orders, the, these AMM pools, to both buy and sell NFTs simultaneously. And the ultimate goal of this is to actually create a very liquid market um, for NFTs on Solana. So the biggest, like the big thing with trading or any markets in general is liquidity. As long as there's enough liquidity on the books, um, so both buy side liquidity, which are basically bids and sell side liquidity, which are basically listings, then you have a very efficient market and true price discovery can happen and people can sort of get the best prices, um, the best prices for the NFTs, both if they want to sell NFTs and both if they want to buy NFTs. 
we think that this is like fundamental to making NFTs, you know, truly the next trillion dollar asset class. If there's not enough liquidity in the space, um, then you're essentially just trading like a really uh, poorly run like shitcoin. If you like look at all these like like certain price charts for like mm -hmm. these altcoins or shitcoins, like you'll see these like giant candles that happen every so often. And that's because there's not enough liquidity on the markets where people where a big yeah. whale can easily manipulate the price and cause people to either like panic dump or like panic buy. Um, so that's that's like that's one of the big primary purposes is to bring more liquidity to the space so that you know larger institutions, larger whales want to come and trade Solana NFTs. Um, and there was also some other news from my recollection as well. Yeah, so I guess uh, we've closed our seed, and it's it's definitely been a journey. Uh, so I think we shared a little bit of it in in the tweet thread on on Twitter. But we literally started raising our seed on the day that it became known that FTX is going under, and we're sitting there. So we went through a lines DAO, which, by the way, huge shout out to like some of the best guys in crypto, and anybody who's a founder should definitely consider applying there, but. Yeah, so we're sitting there in our demo day, which we have spent a shit ton of time preparing for. And, you know, like they're cycling through the demo videos. Uh, there's a lot of investors listening. And on, on our second screen, we just have the Solana chart. And it's going from 30 bucks to 10 bucks in a day, right? Like not even a day, like two hours. We're just like looking at that. And it's like, we, we don't, we, we didn't even know, like, what do we tell investors? Cause like we got on a call, they do these things called breakout rooms where you, uh, it's like you in a zoom call and then people join, ask you questions and people would join. And there was this awkward silence and, and, and somebody went like, so when are you guys leaving Solana? <laughs> right. And we've like spent like six months building this product on Solana, going our <laughs> user base, like community, everything. And it's just like, yeah, like I understand what you're asking that. Um, anyway, long story short, Obviously, like most VCs either got <laughs> burned physically because they lost money or just like didn't want to invest in Solana projects. And so, you know, a month and a half later, we basically didn't have a lead. And we we're like, okay, like this is useless. It's not going to go anywhere. Let's just raise from the community. And we basically went to all our customers that told us that they like us. And we just said, hey, we're doing a small round. We cut down the valuation because, you know, things are tough. And like, do you want it? And to our surprise, we basically raised the first million. Uh, via just people that use the platform and a couple other angels that we knew. And once we had that million in the bank, then we got connected to Chris. Uh, we didn't really need the money anymore. We're a very lean team. We could just run with that million. Like we basically thought like that was it. And then we could, got connected with Chris from Placeholder. And like, mm -hmm. like speaking to Chris from Placeholder was like night and day compared to other VCs because he didn't ask for like stupid, you know, like give me a six months revenue projections when it's like two dudes in pajamas that have no idea what they're doing. He like asked like real questions like about the market, about the team, about our backgrounds, how do we mm -hmm. work together? And then, yeah, he basically, we met the rest of the Placeholder team that are amazing. And on the back of two calls, they just made a decision to invest one and a half now. And that was it, right? That was the end of the round because like we didn't need any more money. And then we just threw in a couple, um, couple extra people in the end. So I guess like FTX collapse was a blessing and a curse for us in the sense that we couldn't do it the normal way. And so we kind of had to like involve a lot of angels and raise some of the community. But it also means that we now have a Telegram group with like 60 of the most active people on Solana that are 
you know, supporting us, retweeting our stuff, like just genuinely rooting for the project because they were the only money in at the time. Um, and so I don't know, I couldn't have asked for it to turn out any better. I think, I think where we are is really cool. And I'm just like grateful to every single one of those people that uh, chose to support us. Yeah, congrats, guys. It was really noticeable on Twitter, actually, just how much support you guys were getting. Uh, and how and I guess it's because there's not that many raises being announced right now that you know it also kind of feels like a win for the whole for the whole ecosystem I think to hear that you know teams are raising and and um and you know being successful basically um I want to quickly jump back to the the loot boxes because again this is kind of going back to the gamification thing I think that you you mentioned earlier that you kind of had a background in gaming like what do you guys think about this sort of game gamification angle is there like is it sort of fertile ground to to push further like is it is it kind of more of an afterthought for you guys or do you guys really see it as like a core part of the product yeah i i can take this one so i think initially we thought that gamification is sort of the icing on top like once we reach let's say product market fit um then we can like tack on gamification components to the platform so that we can you know drive um, more usage, we can keep people retained for longer. But what we realize is that, you know, a lot of crypto right now is, to some extent, like they do touch on sort of the core drives of gamification. Like if you think about just speculation, a lot of the reason why people find it fun is because there's, let's say, a, a feedback loop that you would find in games. Like, you know, there's some uncertainty of if I buy into this project, you know, what rewards am I going to get? You know, oftentimes it's negative rewards, like you tend to lose money. Um, but a lot of the times, like you can make these outsized returns, you know, 2xing, 3xing, 4xing on your initial on your initial uh, investment. And that's like very similar to how a lot of games, or I guess games in general are built, is that there's this like reward feedback loop. Um, and I think like for us, we want to make Tensor um, almost like a game in itself where beyond just you know the trading activity you can um, engage with let's say collecting our nfts you can essentially accumulate accumulate points or um this is, hasn't been you know released yet but like you can accumulate like some sort of um, almost like soft currency where you can use that to you know upgrade your nfts to purchase more loot boxes um, but all of that can only be done if you use a platform. And I think like that's like gamification itself is hugely under uh, used in crypto right now. And a lot of platforms could probably benefit uh, quite a bit by introducing some sort of these, some sort of me like gaming mechanics. So for, for us, it's, yeah, for us, it's, um, yeah, 100%. Like it's, it's a first class citizen, um, in terms of like where it stands in our roadmap. It's probably the most important feature or mm -hmm. uh, product that we're working on right now. Yeah, one that's really interesting. Uh, sorry, I'll just quickly add to that. One interesting realization we had. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Was that so initially, like we we started building Tensor, thinking we'll, we're building a very utilitarian product. Like it either works or it doesn't. It either has the charge or it doesn't. It either shores the order book or it doesn't. And then I think what we realized over time was that, like, yeah, it's actually. Like there, there's this kind of playful, fun component to it. And you really need to think about that very carefully because ultimately many people, they also do this for fun. And it's, it's, it's a form of entertainment for them. Like crypto, if you really think about it, it's, it's a form of entertainment for a lot of people. 
And that's why like Twitter is so active. Mm-hmm. And there's like a lot of people going back and forth, like all the social interactions. And if you dismiss all of that, if you throw all of that away, then you're kind of like throwing away a lot of the product market fit and a lot of the value you can be providing to your users. And so we're thinking about this gamification thing and how do we actually make the platform farm fun and interesting, interesting to use a lot more carefully. And like, it doesn't mean that we need to make it predatory. Like, I want to be very clear on that. It's not mm. about that. It's, it's about making it, there's like, it's like level. It's like you can show up and you can just trade and you don't have to engage with anything. Everything is optional. It's completely up to you. But if you want to, you can also, you know, like level up your NFT. And like, if you level up your NFT, then you'll get certain perks. Maybe the fees will be cheaper, maybe something else, right? And it just gives like people a bit more, um, and there's a bit of lore and a bit of this and a bit of that. And it's like, all of a sudden, like, there's like kind of more involved things. And like, you're really having fun as much as you're basically doing your day-to-day thing. And like, yeah, I think that's generally where the puck is skating in the world, right? You, you look at successful products, they can have those, those elements to them. Um, yeah, so I guess that's how we're thinking about it. Yeah, again, like I absolutely love the way that you guys are approaching it. Mm-hmm. I actually worked on a hackathon project. I think it was probably three hackathons ago, which was where like a, a kind of a game of gamification where you could upgrade NFTs. And there would be like resources and then you could spend the resources to upgrade the nfts or merge them um, and so it's so cool to actually hear you know live products going in that direction as well uh, and i think there's there's so much untapped potential in you know having multiplier having items that like sit on top of you know your your vault or whatever and provide a multiplier and, and it's just yeah it's not like necessarily a core piece of the product or it's not necessarily you know like absolutely required but so much of what brings people back to a to a great product is actually the delight that they get when they're using it and so um it's yeah basically really cool to hear guys hear that you guys are heading in that direction um we're kind of coming up on time here i'd like to just zoom out a little bit and get you guys's take on you mentioned that and the, the vcs were like when are you leaving solana i'd like to get you, you guys's take on the solana nfts ecosystem as it is today um, there's been a lot of a lot of dispute or a lot of um, argumentation around royalties recently i'm not super in nft in the nft land so i'm not up to date on that but what's the what's the what's the feeling moving into 2023 with nfts on solana i mean from what we've seen compared to ethereum like solana has surprisingly handled royalties much better than what's going on on ethereum right now like what worries me about ethereum and the whole royalty issue there is that marketplaces are now blocking each other like they're telling creators to block marketplaces Mm. basically saying like hey um can you just not let certain contracts touch these nfts and and we'll sort of like give you a special deal or something like that's one thing that we were very worried would happen Mm -hmm. on solana um when when sort of the whole idea of royalty enforcement came out and i think metaplex has done a good job in listening to both the builders as well as the creators and the community to come up with a reasonable solution, which is um, currently it's a default global deny list where Metaplex, if they notice that, you know, a certain uh, NFT protocol is misbehaving, you know, not paying royalties, um, then they can, you know, add, add that protocol to the global deny list. You know, what this does is it it keeps NFTs uh, or, anything that interacts with NFTs permissionless. And so that, you know, as a new hackathon project, you don't need to ask Metaplex to add you to this whitelist, right? You don't need to add 
ask every single collection to add you to their whitelist in order to interact with your NFTs. Um, so, I mean, Solana, you know, Metaplex um, and a couple of other protocols, you know, they worked on these royalty enforcement solutions. Um, but ultimately, I think everyone's converging on the Metaplex uh, programmable NFT standard, which is a much easier way for a lot of these existing projects to migrate over to royalty enforcement. And in fact, a lot of them have uh, started migrating over. And, mm -hmm. you know, what this ultimately ends up looking is uh, a lot of creators are now earning royalties again. New projects that launch on Solana um, can enforce royalties if they really want to, which means that, you know, hopefully we see more and more creators coming to Solana and launching projects versus Ethereum. Um, yeah. Ilmoy, uh, Il do you have anything to add on to that? Um, yeah, I think so royalties is one aspect. And I fully agree with, like, we all got into Web3 because we believe in this shared, sorry, like individual ownership of assets, but assets being shared between different products. If you take this away, then what are you left with? You're as good as going back to a Postgres database. And we actually had collections message us and, and they told us something like, guys, we really like Tensor. Mm -hmm. we, we want to only launch a Tensor. We're only going to whitelist mm -hmm. Tensor. And we actually told them no, because we don't want to set that precedent. We don't think it's right. We, we just don't want to play that game. It's not right. We want all collections to trade everywhere. This is just not the right way to do it. Um, mm. And so the, I think that's a really important aspect. And Metaplex has kind of opened up Pandora's box with their blacklisting and whitelisting rules. I just hope that we as a community are mature enough to not take this to stupid extremes. Because at that point, it'll be the demos of everything. Like not just Tensor, not just like name your favorite marketplace. It'll be just the game over for everything. Because you'll just have like Web2 companies building like siloed products that never become anything interesting. Anyway, so that's that's royalties. I think a second more interesting part is what can you do in NFT land on Solana that you can't do on other chains? That's a really important question. Because ultimately, Solana is not going to win if all we do is copy stuff from Ethereum. And the most obvious answer to that is very tightly related to mm. Solana's core, which is cheap and fast transactions. And so I think looking at use cases where you need to issue NFTs in the millions of billions is kind of going to, our hunch is that it's going to be Solana's product market fit for NFTs, like very uniquely Solana's product market fit. And so technologies like compressed NFTs that Tolly and team have worked on and developed um, are, are very promising to us. And it's something that we're thinking a lot about. And there's a couple of projects already using them, right? So Helium and um, again, going back to Dialect, right? Those guys are already experimenting with them. And like, it's super exciting to us because you can only do that on Solana. You just cannot mint a billion NFTs for a penny on Ethereum, but you, you can do it on Solana. And like, I'm not saying one is better than the other. Ethereum has its use cases. Solana has its use cases. Like, can we just like stop this whole tribal thing and just be like, yo, like let's build awesome products, right? Like, so yeah, I think that's, that's what really excites us about the future of NFTs on Solana. Yeah, really cool. Uh, really cool to hear that. Um, I've been seeing that Elusive recently went live and you know, there's the token, token 22 uh, standard, which is also another unique selling point of Solana that I find very exciting on the privacy side. It does feel to me, uh, looking at Solana, that we have a lot of unique elements that kind of tie back to what you said in the beginning. Like Solana was built from the ground up to have a different approach. And it's it's bearing some fruit, as we can see, with things like the, the Token 22 standard and um, a different approach to uh, to NFT royalty enforcement. So yeah, um, fully back fully back what you're saying there. Uh, guys, I'd like to wrap it up just with one last question. What can people get excited about 
Tensile in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot on our roadmap when it comes to both the product and sort of the gamification component that you mentioned. I think like what we launched uh, two days ago was just the tip of the iceberg. Like literally that is like like 10% of what we have planned out for what we're, pl- uh, what we're <laughs> planning on doing with uh, both the loot boxes as well as like how we're going to define the next meta of Solana NFTs. I think the biggest thing that we're trying to push is to bring more eyeballs to Solana NFTs and to actually showcase the power of, you know, cheap and fast transactions and being able to mint millions or even billions of Solana NFTs um, or NFTs on Solana. It, it, it's going to be like pretty exciting because it will be trying things that have never been done before on any chain. Like we were one of the first to essentially, you know, put together an AMM and a marketplace um, contract in, into one like protocol. We're going to be trying a lot of things for the first time. A lot of them, a lot of these experiences will probably fail, but a lot of them, you know, some of them might work and it might bring new excitement to the space. And who knows, it could, it could trigger the next bull, bull run. Um, if, you know, a ton of people are coming into Solana just to trade these, trade these uh, very interesting NFTs. Amazing. Yeah, I'm totally here for that. I'm totally here to, you know, experiment with what, with what you guys are building. Uh, I think that this, this interview, I hope, has been really useful for other builders to take some inspiration uh, and to see sort of what I see is like really, I think you guys are really displaying like the ideal kind of Solana, like builder ethos, um, which is super focused on on users and super focused on doing things like the right way. So it's really, uh, yeah, really like the way that you guys are approaching things. Um, before we call it a day, do you want to share like where folks can learn more about Tensor and, and yeah, follow yourselves? So I think Tensor, uh, go to tensor.trade. Um, that's our product. That's our website. You can, everything's self-explanatory there. And if it's not, then we did a bad job and let us know in Discord. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, like it's the fastest trading platform for NFTs you can find. Uh, trade JPEGs at the speed of light um, and do so with some really cool features. So you can find it there. Aside from Tensor.trade, you can also find us on Tensor uh, underscore HQ. That's on Twitter. And you can follow us. Um, and from there, you'll also find links to our Discord and everything else. And also, uh, you'll see our uh, wonderful community shit posting about Twitter. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll uh, see you there. Yeah. All right, then. Thanks so much, guys, for coming on. It's been a really refreshing conversation. And I wish you guys uh, you know, good luck in the coming weeks with all the new stuff that you're looking to ship. Cool. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review if you're feeling generous. And I'd also like to give a brief reminder that nothing said on the podcast is financial advice. My views are my own. And when navigating crypto, remember that you are responsible for your own assets and always do your own research.